good morning to the rest of our brothers and sisters joining us via YouTube this morning. Very sad not to have you here. Bow your heads with me. Let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're commanded not to neglect assembling together on the first of the week. And Lord God, under this current circumstances, Lord, forbear with us. Send your spirit. Send your spirit out to every household joining us this morning. Heavenly Father, give it quicken our ears. Quicken our ears. Quiet the distractions that surround us in our homes. Give our give us and our children focus upon you, Lord Jesus. And I pray that your spirit would come and commune with ours. Bring your words to our hearts. Give us, tune our hearts to sing your praise and uh, prepare us to worship you today. Lord God, open up the passage that we have before us this morning uh, for Sunday school. And Lord, give me words to speak. Give me words to speak that would be edifying. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, if you have your copy of God's Word, turn to Acts chapter 15. And uh, you, all, you all will have to forbear with me. I've been meditating on this in the New King James, so I'll be reading from that. It's not going to match your pew Bible. So back up to verse uh, chapter 14, verse 21 for the context. I'm going to read a lengthy passage here. And when they had preached the gospel, they being, um, they being Paul and Barnabas, and when they had preached the gospel to that city, made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So, no, so before I go on, just note the location. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, they've been preaching all over Asia Minor. And they've come back now to kind of their base of operations in Antioch. And they're sharing the news there with the church in Antioch of the, uh, the, great, of the great outpouring of faith that the Lord has given, particularly on the Gentiles. And then, verse 1 in Acts 15, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem the apostles and elders, about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by, wor- by mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. 
Simon has declared how God at the first list visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses had, has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own, of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who is also called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter to them. They wrote this letter by them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandments, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. This should be a familiar passage, uh, kind of right in the middle of the book of Acts. There's an event going on here. What, what is going on? In this passage, what kind of meeting is this? It, this is a presbytery meeting. We had this is a divine record of a meeting of presbytery. This is one of the passages that we as Presbyterians turn to when we look when uh, we look to understand how God would have us govern our church. We're not Presbyterian just because we stuck it on our name out front. We're not Presbyterian just because John Knox sent a precedent in Scotland, though he certainly did. We're not, you know, this is not just a Reformation tradition we carry on. This is what we believe. This, you know, the mode that we use for governing the church is is what we believe the Scripture teaches us. And we see that here beautifully. Notice the references to, we have... We have churches established all throughout Asia Minor. We have the church at Antioch. We always have a church in Jerusalem. We have multiple congregations represented here. But do you notice how they're all represented? It says, so it says when they came to Antioch, they gathered the church together. It says in, uh, and then coming down to verse 15, It says, uh, so it says, after the dissension arose in Antioch, it says, Paul and Barnabas being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria. And then it says down again, um, and then it says down again in verse 22, then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So whether it's referring to Antioch, whether it's referring to Lystra or Cilicia or Jerusalem, it's the church. It is one church. We see this beautiful union. So we see this beautiful union. You have individual, so you see the emphasis, you see the needs, you see the cares and concerns of the local congregation preeminent in the minds of the apostles and elders at this time. And you see them being dealt with all together as one church. 
there's a lot there's a lot we could say here there's a i mean we could do a whole we could do a whole series on history looking at this dynamic between individual you know individual individual people individual organizations bodies as well as collective action altogether i mean that that conflict those two things in conflict trying to balance those things out that's been a theme throughout history isn't it i mean think about it we have you know on the one hand we've had we've had anarchy throughout history we've had people who are so insistent upon the rights of the individual they want no authority they want no they want no authority laid upon them they want no no compunction they want no coercion at all on the other hand people have looked at that chaos and they've gone the other way and they said we've got to have control that's the only way we're going to have order we've got everybody to do the same thing and, then, and therefore the rights of the individual are trampled upon and scorned i mean the french revolution is a great example you started out with tyrant. you started out with the tyrannical the tyrannical king nobility you know nobility who were only out for themselves so there was a, a grassroots movement rose up threw that off quickly descended into anarchy and far worse and and far worse mess than was there before people got tired people got scared so they looked to a man like napoleon to take all the power into himself again and this cycle just goes back and forth back and forth back and forth and so we see here some of the wisdom of the lord that we should at least be striving towards. It's not easy. We see this in, even in the Godhead itself, don't we? We see one God in three persons. We see, we see one and the many together. We see diversity and unity all in the same place. And we see that reflected in this, in this form of government that we have example to us this morning. Reading this passage, I was struck by, I was struck by something interesting. Um, we see another facet of, uh, of one of the more mundane aspects of Presbyterian government in this. Think about it. We don't know if Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, we don't know if he was there taking notes at this presbytery, if he was reading them afterwards. But somebody was recording very detailed minutes of this presbytery meeting. So I thought of Ryan, I thought of Ben, our state and our recording clerks. I thought I thought of faithful men everywhere trying to get down, you know, trying to capture the gist, the flow of the flow of discussion and dispute in presbytery. And lo and behold, somebody did it. And this at the Jerusalem Council, at the Jerusalem Presbytery, and now those minutes, that record of what happened is here in Holy Scripture before us, given as an example to us. It's a good reminder that even this, you know, the simplest actions, the simplest actions can serve the Lord uh, profoundly. I love uh, on that note, and uh, verse six, it says, "Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter, and when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said, now you can only imagine how many hours.'" of discussion and back and forth went into that little verse and there had been much dispute. You can just see the stated clerk of this meeting furiously scribbling on his scroll, trying to capture the gist and the flow of the arguments and all the counter arguments. And, and, and finally throwing up his hands, they forget it. There had been much dispute. That's what was in the minutes. So then finally, finally we get, we get Peter. So Paul is up. Paul and Barnabas has already spoken. We get Peter and we get James standing up. I think, isn't this a beautiful thing? Some of the three big personalities in the New Testament church are all here in this room. I mean, wouldn't you love, wouldn't you have loved to be present just to listen to this? Um, what an amazing thing. And so we see Peter standing up. Peter stands up first of all, and he says, um, and he, so he refers back to his own experience with Cornelius earlier in the book of Acts, recognizing that what Paul's doing, what Paul is, you know, what Paul is and Barnabas are reporting is mind blowing to people because for up until this time, you know, during the, under the old covenant, then the truth, the revelation of God, means of grace, they were all centered in Jerusalem. They were all centered in the nation of Israel and in ethnic, and in ethnic Israel. There were exceptions there. There were glorious exceptions. You know, we have records of, you know, like the whole book of Ruth. 
and others who came to faith in Christ through the means of, you know, through the means of the old covenant. But now all of a sudden the door, the floodgates are open and this steady stream of Gentiles are coming in and the church is wondering, what do we do with this? What is this change? And Peter, and Peter wants to remind everybody, first of all, we knew this was coming. We knew this would come. We've already seen this. This is just the logical conclusion of where the gospel's taken us. Now, um, I could say more about that, but I want to turn to James here, because as you all know, I've kind of been fixated on James here recently. Let me ask for y'all's wisdom. My underst- Who is this James? As I, st- as I discovered my prep for the sermon on James, there's a lot of guys named James in the New Testament. Um, does anyone have any insight on which James his talk is speaking here? That's what I think. That's who I think wrote the book of James. I'm thinking that's probably the same guy here. I'm getting nods of, nods of agreement. Okay, that's good. So this, uh, so there, there's a lot of candidates for this. Most likely it's, J- it's Jesus' half-brother. Most likely it's a man who Jesus grew up with in Nazareth and who now came to faith in his, in his, little, in his little brother, or in his older brother. Uh, that in and of itself, you could preach a sermon on that. Brothers don't often get along perfectly all their lives. Um, so it's got to be, it's got to be interesting. Uh, it's very likely James is one of the older men here. He was likely one of the old gray heads. Uh, matter of fact, I, when I think about him, I, I look at his style. He doesn't have these flowery, doesn't have these flowery bursts of eloquence like Paul has. James is very interesting. Let's get to the point. What do we do? I mean, that's what you see in his book. You see that even in the salutation of this letter, greetings, and then get right into the meat of it. I think it seems like he, that matches very much the opening of his book. You see him. You can almost imagine an Old Testament prophet in James risen up here to aid and to aid and to bless this fledgling church right from the get-go. And so James stands up. And notice this. Notice this. Throughout church history, there's been this, con- there's been this perceived conflict between Paul's writing on salvation by grace through faith alone, and James's and James's concern for good works, and like these two men, they must have been duking it out. But here they are standing up, and he and Peter both, uh, both, you know, both um, speaking in approval of what Paul and Barnabas are reporting. He even draw, and you can see, you can hear James's deep, deep care, a deep knowledge of Scripture. The scripture, you know, the completed scripture would have been just the Old Testament at this time. The rest of it was still being written. And so he, pull, he draws back from that, pulls this passage out of, um, out of Amos. And he says, verse 17, so that the rest of mankind may see the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Verse 18, known to God, this is James again, he says, known to God from eternity are all his works. So again, so again, these great, these great men have heard the dispute and said, all right, it's time for us to stand. It's time for us to use the influence and the, the wisdom that we've been given in this critical moment of the church. Now from that, what do we make of what James has said? Does anything strike you as odd about what James's recommendation is at this point? All right, so remember the situation. What's being told? We've got, well, actually, it's remarkable just to even read this, but in verse 5 it says, some of the sect of the Pharisees who believe Let's just stop right there and think about that for a minute. I mean, we all know the Pharisees. These are the men. These are the men who are out for the way for the old order. They are conservatives in the worst sense of the word. We don't want change. We want things to be the way we've always had them. Even though God Himself has come to them and said, "No, my, the work is fulfilled. The, you know, the gospel is here. All the shadows are passing away. The reality is in front of you." 
So these are the men who resisted Jesus all, these are, you know, from the group of men who resisted Jesus all through his earthly ministry. And here they are believing in Jesus. So, you know, if we go to this, you know, before there's, they're obviously still causing trouble, but before we go on to that, let's just realize they're on the, they're on the same side as the rest of the apostles and elders here. And that is a glorious thing. Now that said, they're having a hard time uh, because they said this, this doesn't look right. This looks like it's too easy. Uh, we got to do something. We got to do something. Like, okay, these Gentiles are coming in. James, you're right. It's, it's promised. It was promised in the Old Testament. Um, but we still got to do something about. They still have to do something to really be saved. So they have to have circumcision. They have to have the Old Testament sign of the covenant applied, and they have to do it. Uh, they have to do it if they want to be saved. And of course, that's where the point of contention came from. Paul himself would have Timothy circumcised just for the sake of his ministry later on. There wasn't anything wrong with that act. It's the point. It's when anything you do gets tied to salvation that the, uh, that you start to get the concerns. So what? So that's the that's the pointed issue. Does that make sense? Do you all see what the you get, you get what the conflict is here? So now, what does James say? What does James recommend? Four things, verse 20, or excuse me, yeah, verse 20. So James goes a little further than Peter did. He goes a little further. He goes and he instead lays out things that the Gentile believers should do. Now, that seems a little bit like a step backwards, doesn't it? We just went from you have to be saved by faith in Jesus and being circumcised. And so, and then Paul and Paul and Barnabas got up and said, no, but that's not necessary. Peter's confirmed that. James, James seemed to be concerned in that. And now all of a sudden he's saying they need to believe in Jesus, but they should also abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. What's going on here? Is there a conflict? I think, I think that, I, I think we need to see James. I think James is a very wise pastor. And I think his heart is shown in verse 21 where he says, For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. What does that mean? It means he knows the old covenant lasted for a long time. He knows that the gospel, such as it was preached, in the law of Moses, has been preached for a very long time, and many people's hearts are in it. Many people don't know anything else. So he said. So he's telling everybody, keep that in mind. We need to have a. We need to. We need to be concerned for these new Gentile believers coming into church. But we need to have care for the old Jewish believers who are coming in as well. We need to balance both. This reminds me. I've been reading on a biography of Martin Luther recently. And we all know Luther for the, being a firebrand, preached the word of God without compromise, and didn't care who got mad at him or who, you know whose feathers he riled up when he was preaching. Uh, you know, and that's true. We do remember that. We do remember Luther for his fearlessness. But there's another side to him that this biography brought out that I hadn't thought about, and that is his deep care for the people who were coming along behind him that he was leading. There were many. There were many of his. Co- so he, you know, we we give him credit. And rightfully so, for starting the Reformation, for for awaken, for bringing a, a new awakening of the centrality of the Word of God and the, and the need for salvation. But that very movement that he began quickly started to move in different directions without him. 
And there were many who, there were many who like Luther turned to the scriptures, became convicted of certain things and said, this is the way it's got to be. And it's got to be this way right now. And so a lot of people struggled with it. And so much of so much of Luther's ministry was in two directions. On the one hand, trying to proclaim the train the gospel faithfully, and the other hand, writing letters to other people doing the same, saying, "Slow down, slow down." People are struggling. People's consciences are tender. People are uncertain and fearful in this time right now. They need uh, they've known they've known different ways before now, and so we need to have forbearance and patience. His concern was always to defend the church against his enemies, but also to build up to encourage edify. Those who were with him. He spent years studying the scriptures, and he knew. And before you know, before he began to preach it, and he said, "We can't expect people to change it until they've had the opportunity to do the same." So preach the word and give them time. And I think that's exactly what James is saying here. This is where I think you know we as um, I'm speaking more to my immediate audience right now, but we as officers of the church need to remember that our work ultimately is in the lives of people. We're serving the Lord Jesus above all. But he's called us to do it with people. Um, before I became an elder a year ago, I I had this uh, I had this grandiose notion that being an officer of the church mainly meant sitting around in rooms and discussing finer points of theology and church order and things like that. And, and that's of course part of it. But most of the time, most of that is kind of set in stone. And now the question is, how do we apply it? How do we teach it to people? How do we help them? You know, in their str- struggles to follow it. That's a much much bigger part of it. And that's what James is saying here. Let's take these four, let's look closely at these four points that he's teaching. Let's take the easy one first. He tells them to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, why would he say that? Duh. Yeah. Do you think it was a, yeah, do you think it was a problem in that day and age? Do you think it was a problem in our day? You think it was a problem in our day and age? Could he make that application today? Yeah, he sure could. This is just basic Christian living he's laying out here and he's speaking to a point that throughout throughout the history of the church and the world has been a temptation and a struggle for men and women everywhere it's the seventh commandment yeah he is he is re- really here this one is this one's just straight application of the law of god in its appropriate use gentile believers you are saved you are saved by the blood of jesus through faith in him alone now start living like it and let's start by cleaning up your act um, we live in a day and age, you know, we live in a day and age where anything, anything is permissible in sexuality as long as the vague condition of consent is, is preserved. As long as both parties want to do whatever weird, kinky thing that somebody thinks up, it's okay. And that would, and, you know, we, our gener, you know, our generation has articulated that, but that's not a new belief. Uh, that's not a new belief. Everyone has always wanted to do what is right in their own eyes, particularly when it comes to, particularly when, when they're in bed. And so James is just saying, this is where your faith will be tested first. This is where you can make shipwreck of your faith quicker than ever. So don't do it. Stop. This has got to stop right now. This is where, and this is where as a Jewish, Jewish Christian, he could speak with power more so than any Gentile Christian would have at this time. Because these Gentiles, they were all new. They were all babes in the faith. They knew nothing of the word of God. They knew nothing of their great history that had been built up for thousands of years before them. So James could speak with this and share this with them. And then think about the other three things. Things polluted by idols. I think I know what this is. Anyone have any insight on what does it mean, polluted by idols? So that's what I was thinking of as well. Meat, yeah, meat that had been dedicated to an idol and was then after whatever usage was made of that meat in the worship of the idol was then sold, 
that sold his ground chuck on the streets there in Jerusalem. And, uh, and so there were, there were many people whose conscience was struggling with, well, this was used for an unholy purpose. Can I now take it and feed my family with? And he said, sure, unless you can't, unless your conscience won't allow you to. Um, and I think in there we have some in, I think in there we have some insight into why James put this command forward is be, be tender to the consciences of others. Be aware of the conscience of others. Be aware of how your liberty can be used to hurt others, particularly in this rough and tumble time when the gospel is so new, when we have Jews and Gentiles that suddenly trying to mix around the same communion table on Sunday mornings and then fellowship with each other afterwards. When, when the Gentile believers have the Jewish believers over for, you know, over for lunch afterwards, God, don't plop down the idol meat in front of them. Okay, that's not going to go over well. He uh, he says from things strangled, and this is a reference to I believe this is a reference to case laws that uh, for the to, or excuse me to the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament that laws that you should nothing eat not, you not should not eat anything that was strangled. Uh, yeah, that would make it unclean because then in the Old Testament most of those laws were all about God wanted it to be clear there is a division. There is a division between what is holy and what is, you know, what has been set apart as appropriate and then what is unredeemed. And in that, so, but once again, so James referring back to that. And then it also says from blood, because again, the, uh, the Jews in the Old Covenant were told not to eat anything with the blood in it. That was to be poured out, that, that was to be removed completely before consumption. In some cases, poured out before the Lord in the sacrifice. So he's got one moral command here. Abstain from sexual morality. He's got three references to the old ceremonial law. And his concern here, I believe, as he points out in verse 21, is that there's many people whose consciences will be bound by these things. Respect them. There is nothing. This is a, this, this is a tricky point. This was a really, really tricky point for him. Because on the one hand, if he said, you're not saved unless you keep from things polluted by idols, from things strangled from blood, then he falls right back into the same Judaizing error of the debate over circumcision. There's nothing, there's nothing, there's no power in these acts anymore. Jesus has laid that aside. The curtain of the temple is torn in two. The Holy of Holies has been let out. Now we, we live in the fullness. There's no power in these acts anymore. But there is, there is still consciences that are tender, that are bound, that need to be respected. And so he reminds them to, uh, so, you're, so he reminds the new believers, these Gentiles who will know nothing, about any of these ceremonial laws, who will be have been eating food dedicated to idols, who have been dedicating food to idols themselves for years before this, they won't. They'll be. They'll have been. You know, they'll be eating things strangled. They won't have been careful about draining all the blood out of their meat. None of these things will enter into the minds of the Gentile believers. And so, but James is just saying, these are daily. These are daily thing. Daily opportunities to either give offense or to respect the conscience of your brothers. So pay attention to them. Because he reminds them of just how long, you know, he reminds them that just as Gentile believers need understanding coming into the faith, Jewish believers need the same thing. So he wants to bring the church together through this time. And so we see that James's counsel, so we see that this was the wisdom that prevailed in, uh, in the letter that followed. And so they send, uh, they send a, a committee. Uh, would you call this committee or commission? I don't know. And we won't, we'll leave the niceties of modern par- Presbyterian parlance for another time. But they send men with this letter to, to Antioch, to Syria, to Cilicia, and to welcome them. Uh, and to, first of all, say that the troubling words they've heard from the Judaizers are, they, did, they went out from us, but they are not of us. And no such command, no such command was given them. 
I like the uh, notice also the um, notice also the title that the the respect and the love they give to Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This making sense so far. One other thing, and I think this is the thing we should pray for the most out of all this. Um, I'm back up in uh, chapter 15, verse 8. And this is right in the middle of Peter's discussion. He says, So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinctions between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. As he says, he now says the chief thing, the chief distinction, that the chief difference between clean and unclean now is going to be the giving of the Holy Spirit. That is what truly separates Christians, Jew, Jew or Gentile alike, from the uncleanness of the world is now the giving of the Holy Spirit. And then he, and then they, um, and then they meant they could return to the mention of the Holy Spirit down in verse twenty-eight. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. And then he repeats the admonition that James first shared. Notice who is listed first in that. When they give these commands, they, who do they list first? It's not us. It's not us, the elders and, and pastors and apostles of, of the presbytery. It's the Holy Spirit. Those are fearful words. I mean, could we, you know? Could any of us? Could any of us? Uh, could any of us write those? I mean, particularly when we think about that little verse when he said there had been much dispute. In some ways, reading those words about much dispute—that's encouraging because you know, I, um, because there's you know, if you've ever been to an elder or deacon meeting, there's dispute. Well, there are in elder meetings. Maybe maybe the deacons don't ever disagree about anything. Um, <laughs> these are we don't have. We don't have a conventicle of angels meeting here to govern the church. We have we have men, ordinary men, and there's so there's disagreement, and they have to work through things, and they have to make their stated clerk pull his hair out trying to record it all um, because of all the disagreement. But at the end, they can send out a letter. They can send out a letter, letter that they're not only in agreement about, but they can preface. They can the first one they give credit for for it is the Holy Spirit. That's an amazing thing. I pray for you know. I pray for that for this you know for the for the men in this church for the men in our presbytery for faithful churches everywhere that they would seek they would seek to please the Holy Spirit in all that they do, and that's the and that's the great advantage that we need to remember is we have Peter in the beginning saying the Holy Spirit the distinction the distinct, the important distinction now is who has the Holy Spirit and who doesn't Jew and Gentile division doesn't matter anymore instead we look to the Spirit. That, that great guarantee of our salvation that dwells within us now. And then when we and then when and then when the church speaks through her officers, it's it's by the power of the Holy Spirit as well. So praise God, the Spirit is on both sides of this. The congregation, the church being led, has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The men who are leading her, who are laboring for her, they have the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit there is on both sides. And we need to we need to pray and we need to be on our knees daily begging him. Um, that he would be acting through us, that it would not be us, that we would die to ourselves, that the word that Andrew preaches here in a few minutes would not be his own words, but the Holy Spirit. That the deliberations we make in elder and deacon meetings would not be our own, but it would be the Holy Spirit's wisdom. Because he is there, and he is just waiting, and he wants us to be aware of our need for him. So he is not going to grab us like a marionette and pull our strings and make us do, it, do a thing, because he could. 
He wants us to act. He wants us to act in firm reliance upon him. It has to be our actions in submission to him. So he's waiting for us. He's waiting for us to take that. Sometimes he's pleased to let us go do our own stupid thing and have to come back later and say, Lord, I repent. That was very, very foolish. Uh, but, you know, let's skip that step. I've been having a conversation with children recently that's, um, as most of these conversations go, has turned around to be very convicting for myself as well. I've been I've been hearing a lot of, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I did wrong. And it's, and those are, and asking forgiveness and expressing regret is fine. Except when you're, you keep doing the same wrong thing or disobedient thing over and over and over again. And I have to tell my children, I said, look, I appreciate your tender hearts that when you're rebuked, you come back and you seek forgiveness. But I'd rather you actually be repenting and learning that better do the right thing the first time. And so then, of course, this morning it struck me. It's like, yeah, you know. I've got those things. Maybe that's where they picked it up. Yeah, you too, huh? <laughs> We're, and that's what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us this morning. It's like, I've shown you the right thing to do. Now just go do it. And at a certain point, I don't know, sometimes I think the Holy Spirit works in many, many ways. And there are times when I've, I've felt an almost audible rebuke in my own heart. It's like, I told you what to do. Why are you coming back and asking for grace to do it again? Just go out and do it. Let's, um, I hope this can be all of our prayer right now, because we, we're all living in a lot of uncertainty right now. Um, we're, all, we're not sure what the future is going to bring. We're not sure how we're going to approach it, not for our own families, not for this church, um, not, with our, you know, fellow, not with our fellow South Carolinians or anything. Uh, we need the Spirit's wisdom above all. And so it is, it's very blessed to, events like we're going through help us to identify with the men in this passage. It takes it out of just kind of an academic scripture passage. And we all of a sudden see that these are real men struggling with real issues. I can almost, I, I don't know what it is about this passage. Uh, I first started meditating this on at Presbyterian meeting up in Bloomington. I read through it just the night before. And all of a sudden I just, I started to see all kinds of connections to what work we were trying to do and what work's been done. Um, the Spirit just kind of brought this one to life for me. It's such a rich, practical session uh, section of Scripture, and it's it's glorious to see. It's glorious to see the beauty of God's Word. He's not content. Uh, he could have just he could, he lays he has doctrinal sections. He lays out passages. He lays out precepts. But he also has passages like this where we just get to sit down next to that uh, next to that harried stated clerk in this meeting and just listen and see a little glimpse. And we see what we see are not. Uh, what we see are not, um, we don't see hagiography. We don't see people being inflated or perfected for the sake of a, of a sacred text to try to make the religion look good. And we see real men butting heads, uh, arguing with each other. Um, this, is a little off, this is a little detour here, but have any of you all ever read, have you, any of you all ever read, quote unquote, holy texts from other religions? Uh, like Quran, the Bhagavad Gita was one that, uh, it was a Hindu, ancient Hindu text I read in college. Um, the Epic of Gilgamesh. That's a little kind of. That's a very, very old document um, telling a story of uh, telling a story of a man in early Babylonian culture. Maybe you all read any of these things. I don't know about your impressions. My impression was always that. And oh, and of course, missing you know, Greek mythology would be the big one. Of course, um, you know. I don't know your impression. There's certainly the people in there certainly aren't perfect. But you see that, but you see that there's a lot of flaws and weaknesses that are just kind of brushed over and laid aside for the sake of making the founders of the faith 
look good. Anyways, and we, you know, and the scripture has no such concern. Um, honestly, when you read about the patriarchs in the Old Testament, when you read about believers throughout history, you often wonder how does the church ever advance at all? And it's really because, uh, and it really is because the Spirit is the one working through all things. Any other observations? Anything else strike you all as I have read through this? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, this is a good reminder. The... Uh, the, uh, if you read through, you know, much of the much of the New Testament is, is uh, dedicated to this conflict between Jew and Gentile, and trying to make the transition. Because uh, on the one hand, you have the Jewish believers, their consciences are still bound by the shadow, the shadow of the law, and the covenant as it was ministered in the Old Testament. And on the other hand, you have the new believers who are not at all bound by much of anything, and who and, and who also need to know and understand about what the Old Testament and the history that came before them. I touched on this earlier, but I mean both both steps are critical. The Jewish believers had to let go of a certain thing. The new the new Gentile believers had to learn about the thing that had come before them, didn't they? Both those things. Right. Yeah, yeah. I just thought of that. I'm going to restate what we were just discussing. Um, Nathan was just bringing up the fact that James is the one giving these admonitions, this instruction from the old covenant. But James didn't come up with this on the spot by any means. He was drawing from a long, long history of faith, and that that teaches us the um, teaches the importance of discernment, and in seeing in every situation opportunity to put God's law to practice. Um, this is a good remind. This is a good reminder to us as well. Like Andrew, com- like Andrew commented from the back, uh, it is that is one of the great struggles from the church because the church. The church is a true melting pot uh, its best times. This, the church is where the only thing that we have in common we come into, the only things we have in common we come into the church is that we're human and that we're sinners. Uh, but everything, but, you know, wealth, poverty, male, female, young, old, blue collar, white collar, politician, lawyer, you know, plumber, all of these things, uh, we all bring in. These distinctions make no difference once we're in here. We all fill these pews just the same. Or we should, and and of course churches fall into error when they do the very same thing here, trying to say or fall, you know, like the debate here or like we see in other places when churches try to make distinctions on anything other than presence of the Holy Spirit or not. So you start to make other distinctions and you start to get into trouble very quickly. This is we need to um, something we need to remember too. And in this time, we have brothers and sisters all over the world right now. Uh, we have a unique reminder in the, you know, the concern over the COVID-19 disease and the, and the reactions to it. You can kind of see everyone you meet around right now. You can tell they're all thinking about the same thing. They're all wondering, are we going to run out of food? Are we going to have to stay at home? Am I not going to be able to find toilet paper today? Uh, we're all thinking the same things. Um, we should remember that in another way, too. We should also remember that we've got, we've got, brother, we've got brother elders and deacons out now trying to take care of other churches. We have brothers and sisters in other churches who, who, are, who need to be praying more, who are fearful. They need to be laying those fears at God's, at God's feet. Uh, we've got people you know, wondering, what, what, does, what would the Lord have me do in this time? Um, and, we have, and, they're not, and 
you know, these are people we would have nothing else in common of. We wouldn't speak the same language. We wouldn't eat the same food. We wouldn't live in the same kind of houses. Uh, we'd have nothing else, but we had Jesus, and that is enough. So we need to be so we need to be mindful too. I I still love those. I still love the references to all these churches as the church. I think that's and that's the thing that I love most about Presbyterianism, is that you know we love the local body. We love every every member of it right here, but we also love but. You know, but we should also our heart should also be drawn towards our own sister churches here in the Vandal Presbytery. We should be thinking about them during this difficult time. But not just that, we should also be thinking about every church where Jesus' name is proclaimed and salvation is offered to people. And wherever we hear it, whatever other disagreements, whatever um, whatever its imperfections, we should recognize we have the own, and our heart should still go out saying, "There's my brother, there's my sister. Lord bless them. I want them their work to go as well." We just don't want to go too. We don't want to be too sectarian, particularly not in the face of Christ, the crisis of sin above all others. Andrew, how are we doing on time? I forgot to ask beforehand. I'm done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time to come together. I pray that it would be beneficial. Holy Spirit, we come now. We ask you to come richly upon us as we begin our most important work, most important work of the week. I pray for your Spirit to go out. Heavenly Father, I pray that your people who are absent from this building today by necessity, I pray that they I pray that they would be like those who were absent when the Holy Spirit first came upon the assembly of believers. And those who were absent received the Spirit like the others and began speaking in tongues. I pray your Spirit would go out and seek out. Holy Spirit, I pray you would go out and seek out every member of this body and every household of visitor that we have with us this morning. And I pray that you would seek uh, pray you would seek them, find them, that you would t- come upon them richly and that you give them hearts to worship you today in their own homes with their children around them. And Lord, I pray your richest blessing upon them all. Lord God, I pray your Holy Spirit would give us gathered here strength, to, uh, the strength, um, the wisdom, and the knowledge upon what to do, and then the will, uh, the will to do it. We make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.